AC and efforts. It's that Adivistian time of the month. So, you know, spoilers abound. And while I have your attention, consider going to magazine.adivist.com and subscribe. For $25 a year, you get 12 amazing narrative journalism stories in a year. And let's do the math. That's $2.08 per story and access to the archive. Amazing. And no, I don't get any dough for referrals. So you know my recommendation is true. Dig it. And I'm a really big believer in the idea that there is always a, a right moment for a story to be told. Oh, hey, CNFers. It's CNF Pod, the creative nonfiction podcast, the show where I speak to badass people, be it in journalism or memoir or personal essays or biography, I, documentary film. That happens sometimes. I talk to all of them about the craft of telling true stories. I'm Brendan O'Meara. How's it going? Today's guest is a repeat offender in the name of Niall Capello. This is her second Atavist story since we started doing these Atavistian podcasts. She's at like the river underscore on Twitter and at yes like the river on Instagram. And this time Niall brings us into the world of kidfluencers. This is the gnarly world of teens and tweens who make it famous and very rich on YouTube by unboxing toys, clothes, makeup, and they forge friendships and relationships called ships, we'll get into that, that act as middle school versions of reality TV. If it sounds gross, it's because it is. At the heart of this piece is a mother named Jonna Ramirez, whose life and family get upended by this kidfluencer landscape or ecosystem. Because of the internet, it's like a, the Wild West, but it's also a story as old as Hollywood itself. First, we're going to hear from Sayward Darby, editor-in-chief of The Atavist and author of Sisters in Hate. She's going to tease out this piece and get the editor side of the table. We always like getting both sides of the coin with these Atavistian things, which is pretty cool. You don't usually get that, right? Uh, but first, a little housekeeping. I would love it if you gave the show, a, I don't know, I, I like to call it a little podcast that could. Go ahead and subscribe to it. If you like getting into the nuts and bolts of true stories, uh, be sure to head over to brendanomero.com hey, hey, for show notes and to sign up for my Up to 11 Rage Against the Algorithm newsletter. First of the month, no spam. So far as I can tell, you can't beat it. You can unsubscribe whenever you want, but know that I take it wicked personally. If you want to throw a few bucks at the show, visit patreon.com slash cnfpod. Because this show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. All right. I think that was a pretty tight intro. I'm trying to get these interviews, get, get you to the interviews faster and faster. Why wait? Here's Sayward. Ooh. Your, your position in talking with writers and writers uh, sometimes being insecure about whether they're able to like kind of stick a landing on something. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, what are conversations that you typically have with a writer who might be just in the throes of those insecurities about whether they can, you know, land or deliver what they say they're going to deliver? Uh, you know, I think a couple of things, because um, I think, you know, there's a, there are some sort of different types of, you know, nailing the landing or delivering what you promised, because, you know, there's kind of the, is this a good draft piece of it, right? Like, is this a well-written draft? And like, you know, is the ending exactly what I want it to be, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's like the reporting piece of it, which is not always the case, but in some stories, it's like, do you, do you have you actually like found your ending yet? Are you going to be able to find your ending? And so, you know, I mean, those are two different conversations um, because, in the case of, you know, the, the first situation, um, you know, I can, I say, you know, do your, do your best. And then like, what I'm here to do is to like, work on that with you. And, and so, you know, send me a draft. It's okay. If it's rough, it's okay. If you don't think it's perfect, honestly, if you did think it was perfect, I'd be concerned. Cause like no writer ever thinks their work is perfect. Um, right. and if you, <laughs> yeah, like, like I said, some questions. You're a sociopath. Yeah, exactly. So, um, so I always encourage people like, I'm not here to judge you. I'm here to help you. So, you know, sending something to me when you really feel like you're out of steam or don't know, um, you know, where to go or just really, you know, feel like 
you're not quite sure, like that's exactly the moment to share it with me because I want to be here to help, you know, spark uh, ideas. Um, if, if maybe you don't, maybe you don't need them. Maybe you did land it, you know, I don't know. Um, but I always encourage, you know, writers to, to share. And then in the, in the case of the, you know, have you reported it to the point that you need to report it? Is it possible to go farther? You know, that's a, it's, it's really dependent on the, the subject matter, but, you know, sometimes we will come up against a situation where your writer had really hoped that they would be able to find X, and, you know, therefore describe X, <laughs> you know, whatever X is at the end of a piece. And for whatever reason, it's not going to happen. And so then, you know, the conversation we have is not, you know, uh, what can we do about this failure? Because it's not a failure per se. It's just, you know, a thing that happened. Um, and so oftentimes the conversation is about how do we maybe reframe the project slightly um, so that the question we're asking isn't promising the delivery of X. Like maybe the question the project is asking um, that propels it forward is is different. Um, and so I was actually just having a conversation yesterday with a writer and a, a film director um, about a project. And we were talking about the difference of like the difference between an ending that feels conclusive, like all of the threads tied up and then an ending that answers a question. And, you know, even with threads being loose and, you know, life is full of loose threads, like endings are not always conclusive um, to say nothing of, you know, how they're not uh, terribly happy a lot of the time. And so, you know, at that point, I think sometimes people are like, well, I went down this path and therefore like I must reach the end of the path. And it's like, OK, well, what if we backtracked and tried a different path, which doesn't mean completely, you know, reworking the story, but again, sort of re re angling it slightly. So yeah, so those are kind of the two different conversations uh, I would I would have with writers at that point. Niall Capello is back, and that that's mm. got to be uh, you know something that, that's got to be nice working with a writer again uh, for the Atavis, which is uh, something that uh, you don't often see a lot of you know repeat writers coming in. So that what was it like having uh, Niall back? Yeah, you know, I um because I calculate our um royalties for our writers on a quarterly basis and so I'm well aware of who's written more than once because I have to add up the royalties um mm -hmm. from from their stories and you know there are a handful of people who in like the first five-ish years of the Atavis existence wrote more than once so Matt Share um Josh Hammer, uh, James Verini, um, Evan Ratliff, obviously our, our original um, editor-in-chief, and I'm missing somebody, oh, Josh Bierman. Um, and then in the last couple of years, it has been, you know, pretty, pretty infrequent. I think the only two repeat writers up to this point during my tenure have been um, Greg Donahue and Bill Donahue, not related and then Niall, um, and Niall is um, is great. Uh, and the thing I love about Niall is that um, she is the kind of writer who has a ton of ideas at any given time and is kind of always keeping a fire underneath them. So the the two times she's pitched me, if I if I recall correctly, both times she didn't pitch me one idea; she pitched me several ideas, <laughs> and was like, "I'm working on this, and I'm working on this, and I'm working on this. Do any of these like strike you as interesting?" Um, but the thing is, it's not just that she's, you know, been like reading about a thing um, and, you know, considering that maybe she would dive into it. Like she's already in, like she already has sourcing. She already, you know, she just has a lot of energy, um, which I, I really respect. And so in this case, with this particular story, um, she had been following this tween influencer space on YouTube for a long time, um, really understood the ecosystem. And she'd also established a relationship with a source who, you know, is ultimately the main sort of subject in, in the piece. Um, and Niall is a breeze to work with. She is maybe the most like she responds faster to my emails than pretty much any writer. And I pride myself on responding pretty quickly to emails. And she like beats me like <laughs> wise every time. And, and she just has a good sense of, you know, she works in documentary films and she has a good sense of like what, what makes the story tick. And so it's, it's really fun, fun to work with her. Um, I mean, this piece is interesting because I guess you could describe it as fun on the one hand, but also I think this is maybe one of the scariest pieces we've ever <laughs> run, yes. Yes, <laughs> even though no one is murdered. <laughs> so, um, so yeah, it was, it was an interesting project for sure. It, it made me think of Judy Garland too, and how with child actors and how they're handled, like this is something that goes back, 
you know, decades and decades. And it's just the, the medium and the format change. And nowadays it's, it's YouTube and unboxing and these, uh, quote ships which are these sort of faux relationships uh and the merging of names and the erasure of identity all for this really capitalistic gain it's like such a gross uh sandbox to be playing in so and so for you even though the subject matter is just like objectively kind of gross the the quality of the piece and quality of niall's delivery of it is, is you know it's wonderful like so what intrigues you about you know gross subject matter but even when the the storytelling of it is is really well done and masterful yeah well i mean what's fascinating about this particular topic a couple of things like like that really drew me to it one is something you were just alluding to which is the fact that this is a tale as old as hollywood right child entertainers um and like what rights they have, um, you know, what responsibility studios, parents, you know, whoever have to them. Um, I mean, I guess we could, you know, is it ethical at all to put children into entertainment? You know, kind of all these like big, big questions um, that have been around. I mean, and obviously before Hollywood as well. It's just that, you know, Hollywood is the entertainment machine that we all know. And so there was this timeless kind of quality to it. Um, but at the same time, there's this wild west aspect because online content creation, you know, when you are making millions of dollars because your kid is unboxing something on YouTube or because your kid is, you know, filming these videos with their quote unquote friends, um, you know, doing pranks and, and whatnot. It's like nobody quite knows how that fits into the entertainment landscape. Like you don't have a studio behind this stuff. You don't have a production company behind this stuff. There's kind of this grassroots aspect of it, which, you know, on the one hand, there's something very American about the like, you know, anybody can succeed, anybody can do anything. But there's also something deeply American about it insofar as like how quickly it becomes exploitative. And, uh, and so I was really fascinated by the sort of two, the, the sort of unprecedented quality of the story and sort of the, the, the questions that it's asking about like the future of technology and entertainment. But then also the fact that it is just like, you know, a variation on a theme at the same time, um, like a theme that we've, you know, seen, heard, written stories about before. Um, so that that was like kind of what, you know, drew it to me, uh, drew me to it, excuse me, when she pitched it. And then on top of that, you know, there's like, it's a it's kind of a morbid curiosity, I think, that, you know, draws you into trying to understand this space and why anyone would, you know, let their kid get involved in influencing and I think too, it's like morbid curiosity, but also there is there are actual real stakes here, right? Um, you know about well being, about about individual well being, about collective well being, um, you know about regulation, all these different things. So you know, it's not just oh, this is a weird space that I mean, I don't have kids. Um, <laughs> um, I was not at all like acquainted with this space. I mean, I knew of it, but you know, this was the first time I really spent time watching videos and kind of wanting to hide under my desk because it was freaking me out. Um, <laughs> uh, but you know, it wasn't just the, oh, wow, oh, well, this is weird. Like, let's get underneath the surface and like talk about how weird it is that that's not really it's not voyeuristic in that way, I guess is what I'm trying to say, um, where, you know, we're just saying like, look at this weird thing. Um, we're treating it, and Niall definitely like treats it really respectfully by saying, you know, we can all acknowledge that this is like uncomfortable in certain ways, but like, are there, you know, benefits to it? Are there positive aspects to this ecosystem? Um, you know, if there are, how do we protect them? And I should, I should say, you know, the piece it's not like she's asking these, you know, sort of questions in a, like, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of uh, eat your vegetables, like, instructive way. Um, mm -hmm. Like, the story is extremely compelling. But I think that, like, those questions are, like, laced into it. Um, and it's supposed to be a conversation starter. Um, it's supposed to be thought-provoking. You know, there's been some reporting on, like, the lawsuit that I don't want to give too much away, but the lawsuit that um, informs a good bit of the story um, but the main subject is actually not involved in the lawsuit because she can't be involved in the lawsuit. And the question of why she can't be involved in the lawsuit is, you know, really kind of the, the, the crux of the piece. And another thing that I really liked about the way Niall was approaching the story is that she found a subject who, through whose eyes 
we can see this space. Like she's learning about the space as her kid is getting involved in it. And the, she almost is like a proxy for the reader in that process. Um, you know, somebody who, you know, hasn't spent a lot of time watching 11 year olds pull pranks on each other um, on videos that get 7 million views. <laughs> um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's a, it's a really tricky story. Um, writing about the internet is always difficult from a, you know, how do you visualize it perspective? But I think that Niall, I mean, she just, she just like had the language, um, knew the kind of key players um, and knew how to articulate this in a way that, you know, when I ask things in my edit, like I'm old, explain this to me, please. You know, like Mm -hmm. she, she really knew how to do that in a succinct um, and, you know, very compelling way. So yeah, I'll be, I'll be curious to know how people people feel about it. I just keep telling my friends who have kids, I'm like, if you can keep them away from YouTube, do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I think that's the that's the lesson of it all. And it, it <laughs> also gets to the sense of these these how the 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 kid influencing landscape, how the influence cuts both ways. They're they're building this platform and celebrity, but it's also like degradating and rotting out the foundation of their families and it's just there's a fork in the road like who's going to choose what and what direction do you go and it's just this really rotten ecosystem uh, that that also permeates this piece right right and I do you know I think and I was having this conversation with Niall yesterday I want to say maybe two days ago you know we don't want to suggest that like if you get involved in, if, if you, know, you know, your kid gets involved in this space and you become like a stage mom for your kid, you know, in the YouTube space, you are a bad person. Like, that's not what the point of the piece is. Right. The point of the piece is that, you know, if you make that decision, like there is, there are these like rotting, like rotten to the core parts of an ecosystem like this. And it's kind of a question of like, what do you do about that? Um, you know, if your kid wants to do this, if your kid is good at it, you know, should you stop them from doing it? Um, or, you know, if, when should you, where should you draw lines? You know what I mean? Um, and again, I think Niall does a nice job of not saying like, this is where the line is. It's more like trying to shine a light on the landscape and, you know, raising the question of where, where these lines should be and, and who should be in charge of enforcing them. So, yeah, uh, it was a weird, yeah, I mean, watching videos with titles like pretending I forgot my boyfriend for 24 hours, like, (laughs) um, and the entire premise of this, like, 15-minute video or whatever is that, you know, this 12, 13-year-old hit her head and she can't remember who her, quote, boyfriend is, um, and that's it. That's, like, it's like a, it's like a sketch, you know, and uh, it's, like, weird reality TV for kids and, uh, yeah, just not, not a world of videos. I mean, to be clear, I also didn't, you know, having written a book about white nationalism before I did that, I didn't expect that I was going to be spending a lot of time watching right wing videos. And this, <laughs> this is like, you know, another like weird pocket of the internet. Yeah, I guess I, I would tell listeners slash readers to click on click on links at your own risk. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was one thing I could not bring myself to do with the, yeah. the draft I had had embedded links to the videos of of these uh, kid influencers, and I I would just see the, I would drag my cursor over the link, and I would see the thumbnail. I'm like, nope, I'm not going near this. <laughs> But uh, but anyway, this is great. Uh, so we were to get this little teaser of Niall's piece, and we're going to kick it over to her in just a moment. So uh, as always, thanks for thanks for making the time and uh, talking a little uh, about Niall's piece here. Thanks, Brendan. It is time for Niall to step back into the spotlight. Niall's been up to some shit, man. You can learn more about Niall at yesliketheriver.com. She's an L.A.-based investigative writer and producer. Shortly after her first Atavist... Atavist? Yes, the Atavist magazine. Shortly after her first Atavist piece, Girl in the Picture, ran in August 2021, Niall executive produced The Way Down, which came out a month later, a docu-series on HBO Max and premiering this month as in January. So I guess maybe by the time some of you listen to this, it might be last month. Let's just say January 2023 is Death in the Dorms, a six-part docu-series on Hulu. Uh, As I already mentioned, she is at LikeTheRiver underscore on Twitter and at YesLikeTheRiver on Instagram. And here's Niall Capello, back for more. 
there are certain stories that or books that get us you know excited about doing this kind of work and then you know then we kind of you know develop and evolve as writers and reporters or journalists and sometimes those pieces still uh they age well and they still are you know are still great to us sometimes they don't and i wonder if if for you if there are pieces that you that inspired you i don't know 10 years ago 5 years ago that still hold up for you as you've developed as a writer and a journalist yeah um that's a great question i'm a big joshua uh, beerman fan um so i he wrote an article i believe for gq um years ago that was about it was called i think coronado company and it was about my high school and a uh, drug smuggling ring that was like run out of um, my high school <laughs> uh, with a bunch of water polo players. Wow. Um, and so that was that that article is one that I think opened up this kind of world to me. Um, it was something that you know I related to on such a personal level, but was told in such a masterful way that really you know, brought us into this world that, that I did know quite well. And so I, that that is something I think about, um, you know, obviously he also wrote the article that Argo is based on. Um, he's written for Atavist. So, you know, he he's someone in general that I, I look to his work and who kind of opened up uh, this world in a lot of ways to me that's kind of a hybrid of, you know, investigation, but also storytelling and, you know, being able to really bring these characters to life and, and people and their plights and their struggles and the nuance and, you know, their quirks and conversations um, in a way that, you know, adds a lot of color uh, and flavor to a story, but at, while at the same time, you know, uncovering truths that really need, need to be told. So, you know, in a, in a different way that you might see it in, you know, a news article or a news program or, or you know, on the other hand, like a, a true crime book as well. I, I felt like that, you know, he's someone I think of that really, you know, kind of paved the way, at least for me personally in this space uh, and, and what the potential could be there. Nice. And when you stumbled across this, uh, this, your latest story for the Atavist, uh, you know, what was the nature of sort of the, the pitch process for you when it came to, to this particular piece, when you decided to bring it your second rodeo with, uh, with the Atavist and say, we're. This is an interesting one because I've been following this space that the story lives in since like, I would say early 2018, if not before that. Um, so it's been, you know, a good, God, what is that? Four or five years at this point um, that this has been a, a topic I've wanted to address. You know, I had been following um, in general kind of the business side of shipping and crushes. And Allow me to jump in here. And what Niall means by shipping is not, FedEx or UPS. And I still have a beef with FedEx for ruining a box of my journals and losing one of my valuable journals. And I've been journaling since I was 16. So like over 25 years. Anyway, ship doesn't matter. Shipping in this instance is the uh, relationships between these uh, tween kid influencers and the the merging of their names like let's see my wife's name is melanie i'm brendan so maybe our our ship if we were like 13 years old we might be like brelany so anyway that's the context of shipping in a couple minutes i even asked niall to elaborate but i just wanted to at least define it here momentarily and she'll elaborate a little more but that just gives you an idea of what shipping is okay and okay, back back to Nile. Okay, let's just get back to Nile. Ethics of having brands and studios use tween relationships as a way to sell their products and make money. You know, I I found that to be very alarming when I first started seeing it. You know, on a, on a really large scale corporate commercial level, I would say around early 2018. So this space has has been something I've had my eye on for a long time. Once the, the, the news of the lawsuit broke in January 2022, I felt like there was finally a way into the story. You know, for so long, I had really known that we would need whistleblowers uh, to be able to open up about their firsthand experiences. You know, it, it seemed so, so icky and, and concerning to me from the outside perspective. 
but you know that's that's me from the outside looking in and I knew that we would need people coming from the inside out to to be willing to tell their stories in order to really get you know to make it worthwhile as an endeavor and and to do to do justice obviously to the story as well so you know, when that, when the news of that broke, I remember I was, I got the deadline article and it was like a Friday night, I think. And I was at, I was having drinks with some friends and I was freaking out because I was like, you know, this is the moment for this story to kind of finally break through and come to life. And I, I felt like I would finally be able to tell it. So, you know, I approached Sarah with a lot of enthusiasm about this, this story in particular, but also this world and this, you know, I think depth of knowledge of the space and the history behind it and the dynamics and the nuance and the layers that led us to the place that we are today that is not a place that we just came to you know there were a lot of things that that you know there were precursors to piper there were girls that came before piper there are girls that will come after but i think we need to understand that pipeline and the evolution of this industry in order to understand the stories you know that i'm telling in this article specifically and for those who don't know what ships or shipping is in the context of your story why don't you just like kind of define that term and what it means <laughs> sorry um yeah i mean ship so it, it comes from the word word relationship obviously and it, it's sort of this you know idea of a fandom wanting to individuals together it starts with characters you know you have two characters in a show that you have that kind of will they won't they relationship with you know you see it as far back as you know i mean way far back but you see it in friends you see it in you know all the kind of classic sitcoms uh there's always you know two people on screen that maybe the fandom wants to end up together or is rooting for or rooting against the idea of, of ships specifically is, is, you know, something that's kind of come out of the social media era and specifically usually is talking about tweens or teens in the sense of, you know, there being these creators that people want together. Um, they often end up having these like portmando names, you know, a la Brangelina, um, you know, one of, one of the early ones that I mentioned in the piece was, you know, Hayden Summerall and Annie LeBlanc, who now goes by Jules, but, you know, at the time, they were known as Hammy. And, you know, they did a lot of filming together. They promoted products together. They posted social media, you know, Instagrams, YouTube videos. They were at the time doing um, covers, musical covers, you know, music videos, all of that together. Um, you know, they were singing romantic songs. They were posting hearts and, you know, the fandom really caught on to that and, you know, would, would be hashtagging Hammy and, there were all of these, you know, edits being made by fans and accounts dedicated specifically to, you know, looking at any time these two individuals, you know, were seen in public together or did they hug in this one clip or did they hold hands here or what was happening in this moment? And that, that you know, was one of the early examples of kind of ship as, you know, becoming its, its kind of own living and breathing phenomenon. Yeah, and given that you were following this since 2018 or so, and then it wasn't until the 2020 lawsuit kind of breaks, and then you're able to run with it in a way that you weren't able to before. And I think that really speaks to sometimes we have to be really, you know, patient and sit back and and wait on on stories and pursuing certain stories. And that can that's a that's a unique muscle to develop. So. Can you just maybe speak to having having some patience and letting things play out before you kind of jump the gun and have this pitch before you really know that there's a, a true animating force behind it as much as you want there to be one? Yeah, it's so it can be so hard, but I'm I'm a really firm believer that there's a moment for every story. I, I say this with every, you know, I, I do a lot of obviously journalism, but also docu-series and, and documentary work as well. And, and I'm a really big believer in the idea that there is always a, a right moment for a story to be told um, and that it will come together. And sometimes that does require patience, but I think it's, you want what's best for the people involved in that story. And it's, it's not a, always about when I want to tell the story. It's sometimes you have to let the story figure out when it when it is ready to be told um and you know see your place as a journalist as kind of being that bridge between the people whose story you know it is and, and the public and, and when that right moment to bridge that that gap is um and it takes a lot of I think working with the people involved and you know 
following the story and giving it time to breathe and giving you know, yourself time to have conversations with people and, and really figure out when something is going to have the most impact, um, but also in, in the best and healthiest way for you know everybody involved in a story like this. Yeah. And as you're being patient and waiting for a story to have its moment, you obviously have to have it'd be cognizant of having irons and other fires uh, just to you know make a go of it and make a living. So at any given moment, you know, how many ideas and stories do you have in various forms or phases of production? I have a pretty, you know, because I run my own production company. Um, I have a slate of, I'd say, between, you know, seven to 10 projects that I'm working on at any given time. Uh, of course, at various stages, you know, I just had a series drop in January called Beth in the Dorms on Hulu. You know, that was something I was working on for a long time, but also had a, you know, a whole team working on the production of that with me. Um, this has been something I've been working on for a long time, obviously. You know, I have projects right now that are in early stages of development, just at the point of, you know, I'm starting to reach out to people and make introductions and, you know, gauge the feasibility of telling those stories. I have, you know, projects that are at the point of, okay, we're putting together materials to go and, you know, find partners or, or networks or, you know, uh, uh, publishers. Or I, and I have projects that are actually, you know, in actively in production being made, um, you know, whether they're being writing, writing written or produced um, at any given moment. So I've, I have a pretty full slate, but I would say that they're all, it's always moving and it's all, always at different stages and, you know, different pieces moving at different moments. I think that speaks to a lot of freelancer types that might have a, a lot of different types of projects going at the same time. You know, certain things like a long form journalistic piece might not be as monetarily lucrative as even just like a content marketing piece or whatever. So there's always like these little fiefdoms going on in anybody's uh, anybody's day. Uh, and it can be hard to juggle and keep organized. Um, you know, do you have any insights or tips for anyone who might struggle with organizing multiple projects that uh, kind of cross disciplines? I'm a huge, like, I'm an organization nerd. So <laughs> I'm <laughs> like, I'm, I'm very big on organization. I um, am a huge Google Drive person. I use spreadsheets for everything. So like, Every single project I work on, my my first step is to create a massive spreadsheet that has, you know, a tab for characters that includes, you know, name, description, location, any contact info, call notes, outreach notes. Then I have a tab that's, you know, usually articles um, that's, you know, headlines, description, links, authors, publications. I have a tab that, you know, is for video or audio. If, if it's a documentary, that's usually very important is, you know, collecting whatever material we have on the archive. Um, and I usually start with that as, you know, just like to wrap my head around the story, figure out who is going to be important, what materials are out there already, what, you know, lines of, of inquiry I need to be following. And that helps a lot. And that, you know, I think has, has, you know, been a good system for me, but I think you also have to figure out the system that works best for you. There's a lot of different programs. There's a lot of different organizational tools. I happen to be a spreadsheet person. Not everyone is going to be, um, you know, I, I'm a Google Doc person. I know not everyone is. Uh, I think Sarah said she is not a Google Doc person. So, you know, we, we all have we all have our, our kind of systems, but I, I think you do need a system and everyone needs, you know, to figure out what's going to make the most sense for the way that, that they work and also, you know, the, the story that they're telling and the, the approach that they're wanting to take. Um, but for me, it's really about kind of creating these silos of, of, okay, I have this story, you know, this is all the information for that, that can all be kind of cataloged in one place, and then moving on to another story, and usually those build out into, you know, larger folders. But for me, it's just really about compartmentalizing the information so that as I'm switching between, you know, one story to the next, it wouldn't make sense, for example, for me to have one Google Doc of, you know, here are all the spreadsheets I like to organize by, by story so that I have all the information, you know, spreadsheets, materials, uh, call notes, all in one place per story, because um, that allows me to kind of jump from story to story without getting confused. Moving on it to, uh, to to your piece in in uh, more in more detail there. What struck me about it too, there was a certain timelessness to this too, because we go you can go back to 
child actors and how they've been exploited over the years, Judy Garland and everything. And it's like, it's, it's something that has been with us and specifically in this country, I imagine elsewhere, but it seems uniquely American that it, mm-hmm. it, that goes back decades and decades and decades. And just the medium has changed, be it, you know, vaudeville and stage and now, you know, or movies and now it's moving to internet and social media. So, you know, just what do you make of that as a, uh, as the backdrop of this piece? I, I think it certainly is. I mean, that that's what really struck me and how I've described this story to many people is, you know, it is like when Shirley Temple was working and, you know, the fact that she was exploited in various ways and there had to be all of these laws put in place, you know, because you have Jackie, Jackie Coogan and the Coogan law for a reason, you know, they're the, all of these laws that are put in place to protect child actors are based on the fact that child actors were being exploited. You know, unfortunately, I think, like you said, especially in America, that tends to be the way our legal system works with regulation. You know, it, it when we see problems, then regulation comes in to, to, you know, try to rectify something. And that's what we saw with Shirley Temple and Julie Garland and Jackie Coogan and all of these child actors that ended up having their money stolen or, you know, being abused and being exploited in various ways. You know, and they they created the laws so that now when you go on, you know, a big movie set that has child actors, there are tutors on set and there are very, very strict laws. I mean, I, I grew up in L.A. My dad's a cameraman. I grew up on set a lot. And it's very clear, you know, th- that it's a professional environment and something that that the people take very seriously because they don't want to get in trouble with the child labor law violations. And so, you know, there are tutors, there are very strict guidelines on how many hours kids can work. And, you know, if, if they haven't met their school hours, then they can't be on set. And if they go over a certain time, then they have to leave. There's, they're very strict and careful about that because the laws are taken very seriously. What we're seeing now is that social media and the internet and YouTube digital content has created this base that, you know, I say it in my piece and, you know, other people have said it too, that it is this wild west environment where, you know, we're kind of back to that time where, you know, unfortunately, I think there are going to have to be cases that like this, and there are going to have to be lawsuits like this, that end up creating enough momentum to put in place laws that protect kids in these situations. Because right now, you know, we're, we're kind of, I think, in that, in that time and in that moment, that we had with Shirley Temple and Julie Garland and Jackie Coogan, where they were working during a time where the laws were not put in place and then they were put in place because of them. I really think that that's exactly where we are right now with social media and digital content creation. Yeah. And the, the the main term of this is like kid influencers and it's, you know, these, you know, kids and tweens who have the, you know, uh, box opening things for be it for toys or clothes or makeup or you you, na- you name it so uh, maybe for for those who might not be as familiar with this world as you are given that you've been immersed in it for a few or just in terms of the research immersed in it for a few years uh, that uh you know what the the kid fluencing landscape looks like it's a really interesting one. I mean, I think, you know, people want to see themselves reflected in the content they are watching. We watch Bravo and Real Housewives and reality shows for a reason. You know, they they feel relatable in a certain way. Obviously, there's either an outrageous or, you know, a, a aspirational element to a lot of those shows. But at the end of the day, we know someone like those people or, you know, we, we can relate in some way, which is why I think we are often attracted to those types of, of programming. In the same way, kids, kids don't want to watch that type of stuff. You know, they want to watch kids. They want to see their own reality, you know, in some way, in an aspirational way, oftentimes with these unboxings reflected on screen. You know, I, I think it makes sense that that's the type of content that they would want to see. The difference that we've seen really in the past decade is that the kids have become more and more the decision makers behind which what content they're watching. You know, I think with the introduction of the iPad and, and then with the integration of the iPad in schools, especially, it really became, you know, seen as, as this tool and is a tool in many ways. You know, it has a lot of positives, I think, for children. But the more that kids were being given iPads and given kind of free reign to make those decisions of what content they're watching, the more and more they were they were gravitating towards content that, that reflected, you know, uh, that had other kids and was being made not just 
for kids, but by kids. You know, we we as adults can guess all day long what a teenager is going to want to watch, but who knows better than another teenager? You know, you have channels like Brat that really capitalized on that YouTube space. Um, and the fact that these teenagers were, were, you know, becoming the decision makers in terms of the content. Um, so that, that I think is kind of what, what has shifted there um, is that, you know, we, we've seen kids really have more access. I mean, I say this in the piece, they're, this is the first generation that will never not know life without the internet. I'm a millennial. I remember when, you know, I got a phone. I remember when I got Instagram in college, you know, all of those things. And, and it's just not the same for kids now. The integration and, and the way that they are, you know, have technology as just a part of their lives is, is something that I don't think we can fully understand. But they are, what we do know is that they're very, very powerful. It's a really big demographic. And especially with YouTube and especially with the iPad, we have seen them become incredibly powerful. And the more powerful they are, the more that brands and you know platforms are going to market towards that demographic. They, they see that they are generating not only views, but they're, you know, buying things, they're buying concert tickets, they're having their parents buy them merch, you know, all of these things that are, are things that companies and, and, you know, capitalism cares about. Who has to be the adult in the room going forward with this? It's a really good question, because I, I think what we've learned, unfortunately, is that, you know, we would like to think that parents are going to protect the best interest of their children, but that is not always the case. Um, you know, again, that's why we have the Coogan law, uh, Jackie Coogan had, you know, his, his parents basically stole all of his money from him. And, you know, unfortunately that kind of stuff does happen. And so I, you know, I think there certainly needs to be better regulation. Um, but the question is who, you know, like I said, when you, when you show up on a film set, you have a tutor, you have, you know, people that are monitoring kids, you, there has to be a guardian, there has to be eyes on a child at all times. And those are things that are enforced by the people on set because they don't want to get in trouble with the law and they don't want to get in trouble with the labor board. When you walk onto a YouTube set, it's really not the same thing. You know, you don't have, it's just not that big of an operation. So, so you can also understand why, you know, it, it would in theory be pretty impossible for a labor board to, you know, to, to oversee all of it. But there, there certainly needs to be, especially in California and Los Angeles, where this is happening more frequently. And you have, you know, kids that are living in content houses and, you know, coming out here to pursue careers in this and then becoming the, the you know, sole source of the income for their families. I mean, there are a lot of dynamics here that, you know, I think we need to unpack. And unfortunately, I'd love to think that we could leave it up to the individual families but what we've seen is that's just not the case. And right now, I mean, I think you see this in the piece that, you know, it's it's very hard for, for a parent to stand up when they, you know, against this type of thing. And if they do see problems to really get support for that. And so, yes, I think this this lawsuit is a, is a major step forward. The fact that, you know, it's gotten the attention of the labor board is a huge deal, but we haven't really seen yet what is going to come of that and, you know, what type of regulations and oversight could be put in. But I, I do think there needs to be some sort of, you know, an, another layer of, of oversight from, you know, a legal standpoint that would, would be able to hold these types of people accountable or else you're creating an environment where kids are just going to continue to be abused. I mean, it, you know, it's, it's easy to see how this happens. Yeah, and Jonna Ramirez is at the heart of this as sort of the conscience of of this piece. And it was you get a real sense of her desperation as the how the the kid fluencing landscape really cuts both ways. It really can be very lucrative to a lot of a lot of people and it built a platform, but it also is at the root of basically the dissolvement of her or dissolving of her own family. And uh, it was, uh, you know, really like heartbreaking to to read her as the beating heart of this piece, the conscious of this piece. That's exactly how I feel. I mean, I think her story serves as a really good kind of surrogate for the reader in the sense that, you know, I, I understand from her perspective how this happened. You know, I, I see it. They came in, you know, as as professional her kids were professional actors they were doing commercials i mean her her daughter was you know performing in theater productions this came through la casting like you know any other any other job you'd apply for in la 
Um, and, you know, by the time she kind of figured out what was going on, it in many ways was too late. And I think, you know, it, it brings in a lot of questions also about, you know, teenagers. I mean, people, you know, uh, one of the things people have asked me after reading the piece is like, who is, you know, how is this happening? Like, who is enforcing this? Who is keeping her from her family? And, you know, the unfortunate part of this is, to some extent, is her, you know, her her kids are not little kids anymore. They are teenagers. And, you know, they, they are, to some extent, you know, have a right, of course, to express their opinions on this type of thing. But at the same time, when you're 15, and you're making, you know, 40k a month making videos on YouTube with all of your friends, that's a pretty attractive deal. You know, I certainly understand why you wouldn't want to leave that. I mean, I have a lot of, I have a ton of empathy and understanding for these kids that are involved in this situation. I mean, how do you leave that behind? Who, what kid on earth would not want that to be their life? I mean, literally. So, but that's why, you know, it, it's your job as a parent to sometimes tell your kid that they might want to do something, but they can't, or, you know, they, that something that they want to do is not the best thing for them. And so, it, you know, it just, it's really hard to see a parent really trying to fight for what they believe is best and what, you know, there's, there's evidence to support that. Um, and just not only be shut out by her family, but also be shut out by the law. I mean, it seems, you know, you know, crazy in some ways that there, you know, hasn't been more of a, of a full 360 degree, you know, picture taken of this situation. It seems like, you know, the, the legal side has been very focused on, you know, this is this is kind of what the son wants. And, and that's the way that it's going to stay. He has all this money at stake. And it's like, okay, well, but but also like his, there's more at stake than just money here. And money shouldn't be the only thing that we're caring about when it comes to, to child safety and protection online money, money shouldn't, just because they're making money shouldn't mean that they should, all of these safety things should just go away. There has to be a balance of that. And when you know if there are you know parents who are in this in this in this world and it hasn't turned gone as you know south or sideways as some of the instances they they use sight and tell in this in this piece you know how does it uh turn go south uh, for people who are in this ecosystem i i think you see in the piece this real kind of systematic you know, separation of the kids and the parents and this idea that the kids loyalty is to the, you know, people who are running these YouTube channels and the groups and the people who are their employers, essentially, instead of, you know, the, the integrity in their family. And I think that's, that's the first red flags that I really see, you know, when I, when I hear Jonna's story, the, the main, those first things I really, I see in her story are the times where, you know, she was asked to step out of the room so that they could film without her when she was told, you know, the kids do better without the parents around. Um, that to me, those are big red flags because that says that is very different than a commercial set or a, you know, professional movie set. That is quite the opposite of what you would see on a set like that for, for a variety of reasons. And I think, you know, as a parent, even if it's uncomfortable, you know, you, you have to kind of wedge yourself into those situations. Um, but yeah, I mean, it, it's a hard, it's hard because I, I understand, you know, I think in this, in this case, Jonna saw those red flags and, you know, there wasn't really much she could do about it at that point. And she didn't want to be the, the crazy helicopter parent. And, you know, when social pressure is, you know, not only on the kids, but also on the parents, when you go in into a situation and, you know, you have all these other families and, you're the only mom that seems concerned about what's going on. You know, it's easy to feel like, wow, I'm, you know, I'm being overprotective. I'm, I'm being a helicopter parent. I'm being dramatic. I'm, you know, maybe I am overdoing it. And so I, I think it's very easy to second guess yourself. And that, that would be my main kind of thing is like, you can't really second guess yourself because there, there is an escalation and there is, you know, a, a pathway. And even if it doesn't seem you know, the, those red flags itself are not the problem, but they can lead to other things. And it can be the first indication that, that there are problems um, that are, are going to come. There's something very dystopian about this, too. Like how, you know, Jonna here, she is that one voice of reason. And in even like dystopic novels, there's usually that one person who can see what's happening and no one, everyone else has been so corrupted by whatever system that they're bowing down to and it's like 
they are powerless to do anything about it. And the sad thing is that ultimately sometimes they just relent to that, <laughs> to the turbulent waters that is this uh, corrupt system. They're, they're powerless to stop it. Yeah, it's, that's very much it. And I, I think that's, you know, I'm, I'm happy that that comes across in the piece because Jonna certainly, she didn't want to like go public with this story. You know, it was very, all of that was very hard and very complicated. She is desperate and she feels like she has been put in a position where she's tried to do everything. You know, she's gone the legal route. She's tried to connect with her son. She, she really feels like she, you know, like you said, is that dystopian character screaming into the void? Like someone please pay attention to what is happening. I mean, you know, we say it in the piece, but this was supposed to be a temporary arrangement that has now been, you know, over a year later and, you know, no, no sign of there being a, a permanent decision to be made. And every single day she's not spending time with her kids, you know, and she knows that. And she knows this time is time she's never going to get back. So that real sense of, of urgency and just absolute, you know, every single day waking up and it being a nightmare is, you know, that is her reality. It is, she is living in a dystopian, you know, novel right now. And, and it's, it's incredibly scary and incredibly, you know, heartbreaking, but also I think very relatable. And, you know, she does kind of serve as that, that everyday person that, you know, you, you can also kind of see this outsider perspective and not know how to kind of pull someone out when you're standing on the edge of, you know, a tornado. At the start of our conversation, you mentioned uh, what you know, Joshua Bierman did really well about balancing investiga- investigative work and storytelling. And I think you do that extremely well in this piece where, you know, an investigative piece might feel more like just the here, here's just the information, you know, in whatever chronology you choose. But this has, does have some more those storytelling beats that we come to know with Atavis stories and, and very well-crafted ones. So when you're crafting a piece of this nature, you know, how, how do you strike that balance between the investigative work, but also trying to write a good yarn? Yeah, I'm always, I'm always looking for characters and like scenes, I would say. So I'm always, you know, for me, it's all about who is the reader going to identify with? Who are they going to, you know, whose story are they going to relate to the most? Who has, you know, the the story that is really going to tug on those heartstrings as well? Um, you know, figuring out the characters is kind of always my step one. Because you can have a really great story, but if you don't have characters that the viewers or readers are going to care about and, you know, want to root for and, and, and relate to, then I think it can be very tough to sell them on a story. So, for me, it's, it's, you know, big about characters and then also about these scenes, these moments, you know, that, um, I mean, maybe that's because I come from a doc background as well, but, you know, I'm always thinking of, of these, these moments and interactions and, you know, not just laying out this happened, this happened, this happened. And, and that's something I think Sayward has really brought out and pushed me to do as well as, you know, I've, I've done a lot more of that, like kind of traditional uh, reporting style in the past, but What's great about Atavist is they give you the room to kind of create these these moments that you can live in and sit in as a reader and and be there and be like really along the, the journey with them. And so I, I think you see that, you know, pretty, pretty well in the piece, you know, the way these things unfold. But but it's not just from a perspective of this happened, this happened, this happened, but also how those characters feel and move through those experiences and and, you know, what what that felt like at that time. And I think that's what, what can get a reader to really care about a story and really, you know, the, the type of thing that makes someone finish, finish a piece and go on it, you know, go online to research or, you know, write an email to, you know, the people involved or, you know, reach out or share their own story. Like that's, that to me is, is the point of this type of journalism is to motivate people to care about it. And I think the way you get people to care about it is to really have them, you know, go on that journey along, along with the people in the story. And I love hearing how uh, writers or reporters um, go about structure and being edited. And, you know, over the course of this piece, what was the idea uh, behind, you know, the, the the scaffolding that you laid down for for this piece and also just the the editing dialogue to to make it as good as it is yeah I mean it, it was an interesting process because I, I very much approached the piece originally from a bit more of a bird's eye view perspective and I you know had kind of looked at multiple of these different stories and, and weaved them together and 
in in talking to Sayward and just talking to you know all of the sources for this piece over many months, you know, I I really felt like Jonna's story is is the stakes. You know, I I hate to say this, but it is in some ways like the worst case scenario for these other people. This this is why you know all the parents in the lawsuit are are trying to not be Jonna. They you know, are afraid of, of having their family torn apart by this situation. And so, you know, I think for me, it really just struck me as, as a way to give the viewer someone to hold on to. And I think someone that, that the, you know, reader is going to really relate to and understand and can be that surrogate. So, you know, for, for me, it, it evolved. It, it really started out as being kind of three different moms and their stories interweaving and the interaction of them. And, you know, all of, all of that is still in the final piece. But, but you know, with Sayward's help, we really kind of restructured it to focus more on Jonna and her, her journey through this world because um, we felt like it was the most, the most compelling but also the most kind of stake setting, which is always important. Yeah, and uh, when... You know, when I was in, you know, I would say the age of, you know, some of the these uh, kids that are featured here in these various videos, like I was, you know, mid 90s ish. And you know, at that at that time, it was like these sort of like bubblegum colored magazines. And it would be like, you know, who's oh, you know, all these little things like who's who's with each other, who's not all that little drama and all that all that stuff. And so that's always been around. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, this is just a kind of like a new medium. So I don't know, what, what would you say that, you know, uh, stuff of this nature says about our, our culture today? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's this specifically, I think the difference, you know, because me too, and this is something that I think about a lot and thought about a lot when wrote, writing these pieces. None of these things are new. You know, everyone's always had crushes. Yes, <laughs> maybe the term ship is new, but you know, there was always like, oh, I really, you know, I that popular girl and that guy, those two people should be together. You know, you you watched shows and you were like, oh, I think, you know, I mean, it's Corey and Topanga on Boy Meets World. You know, it's of course you we've always loved this stuff. Well, it's even that like Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears too, like in the early two totally. thousands. You're like, oh, all right, that sounds interesting. <laughs> totally. I think I think the main difference, and this is I think overall what we're seeing, is that the the barrier between celebrities and regular people and the barrier between movies and film and you know acting and everyday life is really breaking down you know first of all it's not just like oh I you know Wednesday after school I'm gonna rush home to watch the new episode of Laguna Beach you know or or the hills it is okay this new vlog dropped from this you know creator I like who's like another teenager like me who, you know, is putting a YouTube video that I'm now watching, you know, in the lunchroom or in the bathroom at school or laying in my bed on demand. So the accessibility that you're having to these people on screen is just completely different than you've ever had before. It's it's different than going to a movie and sitting in a movie chair and watching an actress on screen and being like, she seems like someone I would relate to, you know, and seeing them in tabloids, you're getting a much smaller picture of these people. Today with, with, you know, the internet and social media and YouTube and vlogging, and especially with influencers. I mean, the the whole kind of appeal of influencers is that you are getting the behind the scenes, you know, you're getting more than you would get with an average celebrity. And so with that access, though, increases these parasocial relationships. So you feel like you know, these people and you feel invested in these people's lives in a way that you are not with an, with an average celebrity. I mean, people care about average celebrities, but I, I think there's a, there's a, a ferocity and a, and a, I feel like I know this person in a way that you do not typically get with an average celebrity. And on the, on the flip side, you see that with these kids, you know, I mean, that's, that's to me, one of the big issues you see with crushes and ships you know, these are things that typically happen, you know, in a lunchroom, you, you know, I remember in middle school having pe- my friends come up to me and say, you know, this kid likes you. And you're mm-hmm. like, I've never thought about that kid before. But all of a sudden, you're thinking about it. You're like, he's kind of cute. Maybe I do like him. And you know, you get these things planted in your head. That's a lot different when then it's an adult who is going to profit off of that, putting that in your ear. And so those, you know, it, it's really the the kind of commercialization of these these very natural and normal occurrences, but in a way that we, you know, having the adults 
also influence these things in a way. And then what I was going to say is on the flip side, you know, you have the, the kids as well. You have these actors who are, you know, it's, it's a lot different than a traditional actor where you're being hired to play a role and you're going on set and you're playing that role and then they say cut and you go home and you're back to your normal life. The, the line between when you're acting and you're not acting for these kids is, is very unclear. And so, okay, is it a shift for the cameras? But at a certain point when, you know, you're 13 and you're being told to kiss and hug and hold hands with a kid, you know, and pretend to be in a relationship with them and sometimes feelings are going to get involved. So there, the, the lines between all of these things, I think, have increasingly broken down with the rise of social media and influencer culture. So we don't have that traditional separation between art and life between, you know, reality and fiction, it's all kind of blurred now in a way that can be very, very dangerous for these types of situations. Yeah. I think the elephant in the room too, is the fact that it's internet based is that it just leaves everybody open to like a lot of like creeps out there, pedophiles yeah. and everything of that nature. Well, it's to anyone, you know, it's that accessibility the same way that you might have a middle schooler laying in bed and watching, you know, these, these videos that, could be, you know, you don't know who's watching those things. And yes, you might want to say that the target audience is other teens, but you have to know that that this is, you know, what's happening. And we, you know, you hear a lot about these, you know, photos and images ending up in places that, you know, of course they're they're not intended to be. But as a parent, you know, I think we're in general as a society having a lot of conversations right now about mommy vlogging and the safety of, you know, showing your kids on the internet because you really can't control. Yes, you're posting a photo of your, you know, two-year-old, you know, in the tub to your followers. But if your Instagram profile is public, anyone can see that, you know, you might think your YouTube channel is only reaching, you know, a small audience, but anyone can see those things. Anyone can take a screenshot or, you know, a video grab and that video can end up anywhere. And yes, again, maybe that is not the intention, but if you know, you know, if you know you are putting your child, your, you know, in this case, your teenager in very small outfits, in, in very compromising positions and situations where they are talking about sexuality and relationships, you know, it is inevitable that it's going to attract people that you don't want watching that content. And, and are you willing to take that risk for, for followers and money? That is, you know, that's really the question. And, and I, I, I think we'd all love to think that the parents would be responsible enough to not want that, but this is shows that it's, it's not as cut and dry as that always. Very nice. Well, Niall, as I like to bring these conversations down for a landing, I always, uh, I don't know if we did this last time we spoke, we might've, but I like asking uh, guests for a recommendation of some kind for, for the listener out there. So I don't, I don't know if you've been able to give that any thought, but it would be nice to get a, get a recommendation from you. It could be anything from a book to uh, like a brand of socks you're really excited about. Oh my God. I love that. Um, I recently watched, um, I just want to make sure I get the title right. Okay. So I recently watched Vatican girl, um, the disappearance of Emanuela Orlandi on Netflix. And it is, I I'm like, I studied Italian in college. So it's sort of the exact intersection of like all of these dynamics I love, but I, it reminds me a lot of uh, Ryan White's The Keepers, which is one of my favorite docuseries of all time. And it just really, the, the you know, uh, ability to bring us into this world of the Vatican that I think you, you so rarely get a view into as an American um, and as, you know, an American that's particularly interested in Italy. I just found it to be an incredible story and a really worthwhile one. And that Emanuela Orlandi is someone that we we all should know, you know, she, as a character person, she really struck me as someone that I, you know, I felt almost guilty that I, I didn't know her story beforehand. And so anyone that I think, you know, anyone I can get to learn about her and learn about this case, I think should. So that, that would be my recommendation. Fantastic. Well, Niall, this was great to catch up again and, and I get to talk about this really uh, illuminating piece that you wrote for, for the next Atavist. So thanks so much for the time and, and for coming on the show again. Thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure. I, I really appreciate the conversation. Ooh, thanks for listening to CNF. And thanks to Niall and Sayward. What a privilege to talk to those two. If you like this conversation as much as I did, and I did, consider sharing it and tagging me in the show at CNFPod on Twitter. Ugh, or at Creative Nonfiction Podcast on Instagram. Ugh. In any case, consider heading to patreon.com slash CNFPod 
to throw a few bucks into the tip jar. The show is free, but it sure as hell ain't cheap. And you can always rage against the algorithm with my up to 11 monthly newsletter by heading to brendanomera.com. <laughs> as many of you... Okay, no, strike that. As some of you know, I usually have something of a parting shot here. Call it a blog post, call it whatever, call it whatever bullshit I'm dealing with. And I just append to the show, I guess... As a, as a way of just getting some stuff off my chest in my way of maybe relating to you or making you feel a little less crummy by telling you how crummy I feel on an almost daily basis. And I put it at the end of the show because I'm not a monster. Uh, but since there's another pod coming in hot this Friday, I'm going to cut this short. I might have some news to share. Then again, I might not. If you know, you know. Who knows anymore? So stay wild, CNFers, and if you can do, interview. See ya.